Welcome to the Classic Adventure Gaming Podcast. My name is Gus, and we have got another one-on-one interview for you today with none other than the great Jeff Simpson, who happens to be the co-president of Buddy Scott Entertainment Group and author of classic fantasy adventure game modules, such as Swords and Sewer Sea and the Crypt of Terror. My goal sitting down with Jeff was to get inside his brain to see how he creates and produces what I consider to be some of the most imaginative and finely crafted through actual play adventures. Jeff also happens to be one of the best people you will have the pleasure of meeting and interacting with in the fantasy adventure game space. But before we jump in with Jeff and his unique brand of adventure crafting, I wanted to give you guys a very quick heads up on a current Kickstarter being ran by the Merciless Merchants. If you've never heard of the Merchants, these guys produce... Um, great adventure modules. They happen to publish uh, Palace of Unquiet Repose, which is by our, the very, our very own panel member, the Prince of Nothing. And I've had the opportunity to run that myself. And the quality of both the module and play and the quality of the published module are fantastic. So these guys do great work. And they are currently running a Kickstarter right now. That Kickstarter comprises of three adventure modules for advanced dungeons and dragons called the coming of winter so if that is something that interests you and you are so inclined i will have a link to that kickstarter in the show notes that being said let's jump into it with mr jeff simpson well folks here's a special episode tonight we got with with jeff of Buddy Scott Entertainment fame, you consider yourself the the co CEO, correct, Jeff? Co president, yes. Co president, triumvirate. That's awesome. Co president. So Jeff has graciously joined us this evening. This will be. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Jeff's background running fantasy adventure games, including his uh, incredible ability to produce. Um, just wildly entertaining modules. I've had the opportunity myself to run them at a convention recently. And his ability to kind of turn those modules over in kind of what I consider to be record time. So he's going to discuss his process with us. We're also going to have a little conversation about, um, you know, creativity in adventure game writing. Maybe discuss a little bit of his own personal homebrew and how to get involved in homebrew. And uh, maybe at the end of this thing, we'll talk about running games and best practices at the table to uh, keep your players engaged and keep, keep the pace of your games moving and anything else Jeff wants to talk about. So Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. It's good to uh, be here with, I was going to say you guys, but I guess it's just the two of us today. So good to be here. So man, um, give everybody just a little bit of background on, cause you have a pretty cool story, um, kind of how you got into games as a family, you know? Um, so, my yeah, dad yeah. has been playing pretty much since day one. Not not quite since day one, but pretty pretty darn close. Um, as a result, I've been playing D&D pretty much my entire life. You know, I, I have... I've been playing since I was... Properly playing since I was about seven. Uh, but even before that, I'd be sitting at the table when my parents were playing, rolling dice, just sitting and listening, asking questions, you know, stacking dice towers and stuff like that. Um... So I, I am the product of what happens when you raise a kid on D&D, for better or for worse. <laughs> Great. I love it. I, uh, I spent a lot of time, just in terms of history, like I spent a lot of time playing 
the third edition and you know its various iterations um and i think i got into old school games because i found a copy of um and to be fair i'd always looked at a lot of the old modules and stuff like that um just from a historical perspective and i did play some ad and d when i was in middle school uh but in terms of my production of old school stuff, I found a copy of Mold Bay Basic on Facebook Marketplace for super cheap. Um, got into that and just, you know, AD&D, OD&D, BX, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and just started cranking stuff out. Um, mainly because I started making maps and then I realized I had to put these to them. Um, and, you know, here we are. Very cool. So kind of backing up a little bit with your uh you know when you were a, a young in sitting there at the table with your parents what what edition did your parents uh were they playing at the time that would have been uh second edition okay yeah would have been second nice and anything particular stick out or just the dice were cool and shiny you like to stack them um i you know when when you have two parents that are into fantasy you know, like my mom, my mom played at the table. Um, she also read a lot of like Dragonlance books and stuff like that. And then, you know, you have a dad who's running all of this. It's, it's hard to escape. So it, it's just, it's absolutely, you know, a part of my upbringing. Um, the kind of memory that stands out the most is what I consider my first experience as a dungeon master at the ripe old age of six. And uh, it was recess time. And this girl, she said, Jeff, I want to go play puppies. I said, well, I, I want to play D&D. So we made a compromise. And I said, okay, well, we can play puppies, but you have to be a Cerberus, the three-headed dog. And I'm considering that my first ever use of being a dungeon master, restricting someone's like race that they can play. In you know grade one recess, girl wanting to play puppies. The rest is history. Very cool. So when was the, you say you were creating lots of maps at the earliest. Yep. What, what does that look like? Were you just sitting in class? You had the grid paper, you know, classic. Exactly. Together. Okay. <laughs> and uh, especially in the evenings, like to me, making maps, very meditative, very calming. Uh, like you're sitting around in the evening doing nothing, kind of just watching TV. And I'd have the grid book out and just draw on lines. Um, really just relaxing activity to make maps and it's that's actually a major part of my writing process is having this huge backlog of uh, unkeyed maps because what will happen is i'll finally get an idea for a module and i'll say okay uh, i need a, a module and a sewer i come up with this idea so i look through the map book and I go, oh perfect here's a map right here that's a sewer this is what we're using. And I might need to tweak it a bit because I think, oh, you know, I, I really want, you know, the second section to be over here. So I'll erase a little bit so I can add a secret door in or you know, who knows what. Um, but having that massive backlog of maps that I'm just cranking out, um, very stream of conscious, like, you know, I said, as almost a meditative process is huge in the actual process of putting out these modules. So do you always in your process? which we're going to get into always start with a map. Are you, are you not always? Um, There are times where I'll come up with an idea and realize I don't have a map that suits that, or I don't have a map that I like. Um, At which point I'll say, okay, I need a, a map that is 
a wizard's tower. Okay, I'll, I guess I'll have to draw one of those. But the the actual like once I I want a module put out, it probably starts more with the actual inspiration of the module than it does the map. Um, usually, what will happen is a friend will say some offhand comment or you know dumb joke or something like that, and I'll think, hmm, wait a minute, I can work with that. Uh, you know, my my latest release, I think it's my latest release, uh, Brides of the Night. Someone made some comment about. I think it was they don't like the isometric maps in Castle Ravenloft. And I said, you know, one of these days, I'm going to make my own Castle Ravenloft, you know, Castlevania vampire game. Fifteen days later, you know, the module was released. Uh, and those were all maps that I had drawn, you know, the next day kind of thing. So once you get the idea in your head, how exactly do you start forming the geomorphs about what you want to do? Is that just something that comes when you put to the paper or do you have kind of shapes and rough idea of what the layout's going to look like, or you just kind of work as you go with those things? Yeah. Um, I'm very stream of consciousness when I do these kinds of things. Okay. Um, if, you know, if I'm drawing a map, um, I'll be drawing a room and then and as I'm drawing it, think, Huh, I wonder what I should put in here. And then I'll start kind of daydreaming as I'm doing it. And the trick is remembering what I've daydreamed. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, as I'm writing this, coming up with all these ideas of what I could put in there. And then when I have an idea and need to put it to a map, it's, um, it's again, very just kind of as I go along. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, well, this is here. What else do I need that connects to this? What else do I need to put forth the same atmosphere? What else do I need to uh, give breathing room? It's it's very by the seat of my pants. Nice. Do you have a particular... I'm very curious about this too because different people do it different ways. Do you have a specific method that you use for like... You have a daydream. You I know you drive... I know you drive... You love driving trucks. Part mm -hmm. of the day job. And you come up with stuff while you're doing that. How do you get your stuff down quickly? Do you record it to audio? Do you write it down when you get a moment? Like, what's your method for that? Uh, there's like seven million methods. <laughs> okay. Okay. So if uh, if I have my phone handy, I go into my note app and I type in whatever I'm doing. If I have paper handy, I'll write it there. If I'm at my computer in my you know module writing folder, I have a little notepad that's just called unsorted ideas, and I'll just type it up in there. Uh, if I'm driving the truck, what I'll do is I'll start speaking out loud to myself what this idea is, and then just start daydreaming me already playing D&D &D through the scenario where I am both the DM and the players. And I just start running through it in my head, speaking out loud. For the longest time, the radio in my work truck didn't work. Um, so usually what I would do is I would give movie reviews to non-existent audiences until I had a D&D &D idea where I would just start running an imaginary game and by the time i got to uh somewhere i could park and like you know hype the idea up in my phone it was so developed in my head that i was absolutely fine and the the daydreaming aspect of this is one of the most important things someone can do when they want to kind of capture that um you know the creativity People say, you know, Jeff, your, your modules have this like absolute creative spark to them. How do you do that? It's daydreaming. 
you have to be constantly just letting your mind wander, think of different things, um, you know, really just let your imagination fly because the more you use it, the stronger it gets. It's, it's really a use it or lose it type of uh, quality. And a good way to help, I think, develop that is engage with media that has nothing to do with what you want to do. If I want to write a, you know, traditional fantasy sword and sorcery kind of European-esque, you know, standard D&D adventure, don't watch sword and sorcery movies, don't watch uh, historical, you know, knights and swords kind of thing. Go and watch anything but that. Go and watch World War II movies, go and watch westerns, go and watch comedies, go and watch horrors. That's where you get all these little points that you're watching something and think, oh, this is kind of cool. What can I do with this? How can I apply this in a completely different context? That really helps with giving you that, I don't know, oh, this is different. This isn't just, you know, Lord of the Rings copied ad nauseum. Um, engage with media that has nothing to do with what you're doing and do it often. Do it as often as you can. It could be movies, it could be books, video games, music, who knows what. And then as you get these ideas, just let your mind follow them to the, you know, the logical conclusion. That is the best thing I could think of for training um, your brain to be creative in this context. No, I like that a lot. Just to give some concrete a little bit to, to that idea. How do you have any examples or recent ones? I know this is, these are stream of consciousness type stuff, so it can come and go. At least that's how it is for me. It's tough to recollect, mm -hmm. but would love to hear if you have an example where you were sitting in the truck or you were wandering about, you know, in the woods or whatever, right? And you had a thought, you developed how you developed that thought in your brain. And then how it made it to the pages of one of your modules and what it looked like. Yeah, so so let, let's go back to Brides in the Night, the one that I just put out. Um, uh, it would have been October 13th um, of 2023. The whole reason that module got produced as quick as it did because I wanted to release it on Friday the 13th in October. So I cranked that thing out. And, you know, like I said, someone made some offhand comment about not liking the maps in in castle ravenloft so okay it's now my duty to make the jeff vampire module and um there's all these little you know flitting bits i wanted to have um an area where you could go and fight basically like the D, &D version he's a lich who's basically heinrich Himmel, because that guy was he was a wizard he, he he constructed this castle in germany that was supposed to like channel all of the rings of the fallen officers to to help him find the holy Grail. he was crazy absolutely insane i thought this guy's the perfect dnd villain so i gotta throw him in the basement uh i was looking at meatloaf the artist and thought man this is such a cool album cover oh, of course i gotta put a bat giant sitting on top of a giant spider somewhere sorry spire somewhere in here just anything that pops into my head at this point okay figure out how i can put it into the context of this kind of gothic horror uh, uh, gothic horror module. And very much just anything that I saw, okay, does this work? No, okay, I'll write it down for later. Does this work? Yeah, I can put a giant bat in. That works perfectly. Right, stick it in the church. There'll be a giant reliquary made of gold instead of the Empire State Building that's on the uh, the cover to, I think it's Meatloaf 2. 
back into hell. Um, you know, there we go. So cool. So those are the high level concepts. Once you get, like you said, you had the bat, mm-hmm. like this could work in a room. How do you develop out the actual mechanics for those rooms to make them engaging from that aspect? So the conceptual component is there, what the rooms are going to look like, what their shape will be, um, what might be in them. But did you have a separate thought process around how you develop out mechanically what those rooms do? Uh, a lot of it's based on, you know, the monster entries. I, I try to use things that already have monster entries just so I don't have to make something new and balance everything. Uh, so I'll go back and I'll look at the monster manual, but then I'll also look at the Mold Bay cookbooks. I'll look at the OD&D books. I'll look at whatever retro clones I have to see if anything pops out as uh, mechanically something that I want to explore. You know, treasure that might make sense to be with them. Uh, I'll look at the other rooms around that particular era to, area to see if there's something that I want to either interact with that room or say, oh, okay, I, I need something in this room that will take effect later on or have some kind of relevance elsewhere. So some of it is just, like I said, going through the book. If I have to roll on the charts that say, you know, chance of trap and room chance of unguarded treasure etc i'll do that sometimes as a start and then kind of refine things until it's completely unrecognizable from what it initially started as other times it's just i sit with my fingers at the keyboard and just type and see what comes out then i'll read it back and say okay that made no sense how do i change that till it does make sense Um, it's a lot of thinking of what i would want to do and that is a very important aspect in kind of my philosophy of releasing a lot of these modules. Um, I release them for free. I, I don't believe in charging money for them. And part of that is I am making all these adventures for my own use. It is something that I want in my own campaign world. If someone else can find use in it, great. They are more than welcome to take this module. They can change it up however they want. They can run it however they want. But I'm not here trying to make a product that uh, conforms to um, whatever the market wants. It's something that, okay, this is how I run the game. This is what I am specifically looking for. This is what I'll make. If you can use it, great. You know, all the power to you. So a lot of it's just me thinking, yeah, this this is going to work for for the group that I have in mind that I play with. This will be fun. I, I I'm going to enjoy inflicting this upon my players um, and refining it through that lens. I like that a lot. Speaking to I I feel like from uh, previous conversations that we've had, just watching you discuss things and your history of coming up literally, you know, very early in the hobby, you've been exposed to many monsters, many monster manuals, many many modules. Do you feel like that can get in the way of your creativity or does it just make it easier for you to draw on inspiration? Uh, I think that makes it easier. I guess. So the one thing I'd like to point out, and this is an opinion I've had for a long time, is that take Monster Manual 1, just the standard Monster Manual. It's got orcs, it's got some giants, it's got a minotaur in it, right? Your standard monsters. If as a DM, you cannot run a compelling campaign with just the contents of the monster manual you need to go back and work on your fundamentals 
you you don't need to dress everything up to be absolutely crazy um you know if you can't be creative with an orc you're not going to be creative with a norker um and my kind of go-to instead of using the monster manual what i typically do is use the monsters from heroes of might and magic 3 that to me when i'm looking through a game system and i'm thinking okay uh, this it's missing a few monsters what is it oh okay that's why it doesn't contain this monster that's contained in heroes of might and magic 3 that's why i think it's incomplete and i think that like once you realize that and you practice being creative with simple creatures i think it's just another way to train that that imaginative part of your brain where instead of trying to think of okay i need to make some unique monster that has all these special abilities and this and that and this and that you're realizing oh wait a minute i can just use a cyclops and add some personality add some environmental effect add some contextual key add some ally to them and that's what makes it more than just a cyclops standing in a square chamber um, and I think that's that's where the creativity really comes out is when you're able to come up with these um, with these kind of very natural seeming alterations to a situation. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. So if if you could give advice, I guess to and we do this trying to refer this back to folks that are just getting into the hobby for the first time, individual that's interested and in not doesn't want to run something canned, republished mm-hmm. or published, right? They want to create something unique for themselves. Mm-hmm. What's the advice you would give them kind of as far as, you know, how to kind of execute on that process? And because I feel like you have a good insight on how to finish things. You get things done. You have a start. You have great concepts. I feel like a lot of people could benefit from that. So how do you, what advice would you give to that new person? And kind of how do you complete your module so quickly? Like what, what's, what's the kind of recipe for your personal success on that? <laughs> okay, so let's let's break that down. I'm going to start with the the second question, where you know, how do you get these? How how do you follow through with the product? How do you actually get it done? How do you get it out? How do you do it fast? And then I will tackle advice to people that want to make their own thing instead of just running a module. Step one for getting the module out is putting way too high of standards on yourself that no one else, you know, you'd never put on anyone else probably unhealthy, but I say, well, shoot, now people are relying on me. I have said publicly, oh, I'm going to release this uh, this Dracula, you know, uh, Ravenloft Castlevania module. Well, I don't want people to think I'm a liar. I guess I better put it out. I've said that I want it out on Friday the 13th. I can't go back on my word. Guess I got to get it done, you know, or uh, the no art punk competitions. The first two, I had my module submitted within days of their announcement and you know the third one comes up uh, it's you know about to release uh, in a couple weeks i guess now the high level adventure i'm thinking well i uh i submitted my module within the first couple days last time i better do it this like i got to keep up keep up the reputation and part of that is just me wanting to like i said keep up to the standards that i've set for myself the other important thing is, is if you're someone that has never put something out like this before there will be a lot of trepidation maybe or anxiety or worry don't worry about that you will be nervous don't worry you're supposed to be 
But the moment you get that out, just know that, holy crap, it feels so relieving to realize you can put it out and it is not the end of the world if not everyone likes it. And the moment you get that first one done, the rest are so easy. Like the, the scale to it is not linear. It is completely, you know, you get one thing out, you can get 100 things out, no problem. It becomes so, so much easier once you just take that first leap of faith. In terms of wanting to do things entirely for yourself instead of following, you know, the kind of established setups, I'm going to give a really crappy answer for this and start by running something from a book. <laughs> it, it really is helpful when you can get a proper adventure that is meant for teaching beginners. Be one and search the unknown. It tells you how to key a dungeon. It's, it's one of the most invaluable resources for a new person to fantasy adventure games. Um, not just because it's, you know, it's, it's simple and meant for a beginner, but because it literally tells you, look, we have given you the map. We've given you the keys. We're going to let you do it yourself. Even if you don't run that, sit down over a weekend and just pretend you were going to play it and go through the process of actually like reading the book cover to cover. Because you will learn so many little things that you were probably going to miss if you just dove into it headfirst on your own. It's absolutely so useful. Then take a look, like go and look at maps from other adventures. Not so you can try and copy them and say, oh, this is what they're doing. Uh, this is what I should do. But so you can see, oh, okay, this is what I like. I like how this map looks. I like how it feels. I like how I imagined it would play. And then keep that in mind and just start drawing a map. Just let the pencil go. See what you can do. Again, I would recommend using actual book monsters just because you're not going to have to balance them. You don't have to come up with new rules. And if you're really dead set on not using orcs and lizard men and giants and you know, bears, oh my, use their stats, please. If you want to make, you know, pink orcs with tusks coming out of their ears that have a, you know, some sort of blinding spittle, that's fine. Just use the standard orc stat block until you're more familiar with the game. Because otherwise, I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment where you put all of this, you know, blood, sweat, and tears into a project. And unless you're an absolute prodigy, there will be hiccups with it. And I think it's easy to become disillusioned when it isn't perfect. So don't be afraid of starting out small and simple. Stick, stick to what is going to give you the best chance at success in the future. And then once you're a bit used to it, that's when you can start getting really just wild and making your own thing and you know coming up with all these different monster stats, new spells and new items. You'll have... A, the proper fundamental building blocks of, okay, this is how the game interacts. I know that doing this isn't going to work. You know, you, you've set yourself up for success at that point. Very nice. So is there any particular maps that in like your advice of, hey, go take a look at maps that inspire you from published modules? Do you remember Absolutely. like the early day maps that inspired you personally and the current ones that might inspire you? I know the exact map that uh, really, really got me hooked. That is the first um, 
kind of level of Palace of Silver Princess. Uh, when I was getting into old school games, um, you know, before this, I had made maps for things like Pathfinder, 3.5, uh, whatever other games I was playing, and they were very, um, I'm going to say haphazard. Um, it was just me making maps without any real rhyme or reason to them. When I got into fantasy adventure games, um, I set out to make this big mega dungeon. I still have it. And parts of it have been um, cut out and put into other products of mine, notably Halls from Cauldron Mountain. That contains a good amount of um, what I did for this initial mega dungeon. And what I did is I looked at the map for um, Palace of Silver Princess, and I just redrew it myself and then rekeyed it. And I had it on this, it was like a super dense sheet of grid paper that had like, you know, 800 squares, like super, super tiny squares. Um, so I had that facing me as I drew the rest of the maps. And I don't know, I just liked, I like how there's big long corridors in it. I like how there's some little sections. I think it's um, well, um, there's a lot of little loops in it. So, you know, you have your multiple passages kind of thing. And as I was looking at that, you know, I was thinking, okay, how can I make a map that feels similar to this, but isn't that? Um, so if you ever look at my module, Halls of Cauldron Mountain, and look at the maps titled The Cold Ossuary and The Dragon Forge, those were made while I was staring at Palace of the Silver Princess. It's just, it's a cool looking map. It's, I don't know, it's simple. Uh, there's not a lot of really complicated stuff going on. Like, if you look at something like Tomb of Horrors, that's a complicated map. There's a lot of distinct sections. There's a lot of teleporting traps, secret doors, and it's it's all over the place. Um, and it's definitely something that, you know, you, you need to have a bit of experience before you dive into. And if you look at, you know, an, another classic starting adventure, B2, Keep on the Borderlands, it really is a terrible map. It's complete, it's, you know, 10 different sections with maybe three of them being interconnected. Um, and in the past, I've actually reordered that dungeon to be a traditional multi-layer dungeon where they are all actually interconnected. But Palace of Silver Princess, I actually really like as a map. That That is my kind of inspirational spark that really got me into this. Very cool. I didn't know that fact, so that's pretty sweet. So as far as A through Z process for you, when you make that decision that, hey, I've made this commitment, one, I think that's a great thing, right? And it's, it's used to success in many other areas. People can apply that to a lot of areas in their life, right? And they do, um, you know, getting that out to the open, to friends, to, you know, strangers saying you're going to do a thing is definitely motivational um, to do the thing because <laughs> then it's not internal anymore. Yeah. So there's definitely plenty of research that that becomes, you know, that that's a, a very effective way to do it. So I like it. I've used that myself to success. There's even companies, and this is a total tangent, but there's actually companies I just found out from some coworkers where you literally like sign up, you know, that you're going to whatever run a certain number of miles a week. And they, like, test you have to, you and, like, yeah, well, you. Oh, excellent. Well, no, well, yeah, what you do basically is everybody throws in 40 bucks. You have to have like one of those wrist bracelets or whatever, right? That tracks you. But basically, like you get logged from the the tracker, like you have to report it in 
and it has to be confirmed and the company that runs it confirms it. But basically like if you don't get yours done that week, you lost and you lose your 40 buck. So oh, it's, see, it's I a, love that. yeah, it's I like a similar, yeah, it's like a similar type concept, right? You get out there, you get it out there in the open. And that's, that's absolutely like motivation by fire. I exactly. love that so much. Good. It's good. So that's a cool concept. So, uh, anybody listening that really has that drive, tell everybody about the fact that you're going to get this out <laughs> in a certain amount of time. That'll light a little bit of fire for sure. No question about that. Cause nobody wants to, I mean, I feel like it's not a common person is da- is okay with letting letting other people down and mm-hmm. so i think that's the biggest motivator there that's at least how i see it which is cool a cool concept um to throw that around so anyway the point of that was my main main question or thrust of my question is once you've done that mm-hmm. what's your process like you talked a little bit about you get started with maps usually right or a concept and then it turns into a map but once you get there and then you know you'll start keying um after you've keyed everything, you've mapped everything, um, kind of what's your review process, what's your play test process, and then kind of how do you actually refine what's on paper and make that consumable for, you know, whoever, you know, who you're putting out to. So I have a bit of a template that I use that has, you know, just stuff like the, the actual templating for like the front cover of the module and uh, you know, the introduction section, and it kind of says, you know, okay, right here is the paragraph where I mentioned the the map scale and the paragraph where I mentioned where you can find the monster stats and stuff like that. Um, so I have everything already kind of laid out ahead of time. And that, you know, my layout doesn't always remain static. Um, I just put out a seven voyages of Xylarathon module that I put a lot more thought into the actual you know, usability of it in terms of how I spaced out, you know, key entries instead of just this giant block of text that I normally do. Um, Because it is something that I I really want to put out to people as opposed to just making it for myself like I normally do. Um, But I have this template and I'll go through, you know, I'll have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten written down for, you know, dungeon rooms are. And I'll start just without full sentence, three orcs. I'll check the treasure tables, take uh, ten gold pieces. And, uh, you know, I'll make a mention that there's a secret door there. And once they get all that, I'll just go through and just start writing the most basic description that I can. And it usually doesn't get more complex than that. If uh, if you guys have seen my modules, you know I'm not one for, um, you know, grand verbiosity. I'm pretty short and to the point. Um, I like, I, I come from a very improv background. And I like to kind of just make up a lot of that stuff as I go. So I don't write massive room descriptions. I just tell me, you know, the key points that I need to. Um, not in that OSE bullet point style. I'll still use full sentences. Um, but I, I definitely kind of just allow myself to describe it as I go along. But like I said, I'll, I'll write these descriptions down. I'll come up with all the treasure. If there's secret doors, I like to try and make them, you know, a bit more interactive instead of just, search for a secret door and find it. I like to have things like, you know, bookshelves or you pull a certain book or, uh, you know, torch sconces that you can twist and turn and statues. You can, you know, if you shake the statue's hand, door will, stuff like that. And a lot of times I'll get through a section as I'm, yeah, I'm in that zone. I'll get bored and I'll, I'll put the module away for months. Um, and I'll work on a different module. Like at any given time, I have you know, 10 things going on <laughs> the go. 
Uh, I have just, you know, buckets of these things. Um, and then every once in a while, a module will come along that I really want done, and I'll get it done in, you know, eight days. But I'll, uh, I'll fully write it out, then I'll send it to one of the co-presidents, and they're usually my, the Buddy Scott Entertainment Group. They'll usually read it over for, like, really awkward sentences that I wrote at, like, you know, midnight, half asleep in a freaking Powerade fueled, you know, electrolyte days. Um, you know, weird grammar, stuff like that. Um, then I'll go back, you know, do, do a proper edit. I'll print out a hard copy. This is huge for editing. This is, uh, this is something I learned in university. And if you are a student that are listening to this, please remember this, not just for D&D, but for school. When you're writing a paper, when you're writing a module, whatever, print out a hard copy for editing. Do not use your digital, you know, Word doc copy. Print it out and go through it with a pencil or a pen. So many more things will pop out at you. It's, I don't know how it works. It just does. If you really want, read it out loud. That's another one that a lot of things will, will really stand out. Um, I'll, I'll give it a quick edit, you know, doing that. Retype it up. Then I'll uh, jump right into playtesting, uh, where I just usually take it to my home group. And once they're done, the current dungeon they're on, I'll say, oh, you guys got a quest hook uh, over here. And I'll give them something juicy. And they'll say, oh, OK, well, that sounds cool. I guess Jeff needs to playtest another module. So we'll go there, we'll play through it. I'll look for things like, okay, um, are these monsters too tough? Are they too weak? Uh, was this too hard to interact with? Um, did the players come up with any ideas that I didn't think of? So if there's an area that, um, you know, I read it to them, they say like, oh, this this sounds like there's a secret door here. This is this is really, you know, something's pinging our secret door sense here. I might say, huh. Maybe I will put a secret door in. I'll, I'll make a little note and kind of change it based off of not how the you know feedback of the actual okay this worked this didn't, but also you know what the players naturally fell to doing. I will add that in because if you know my players thought of it, good chance other players will think of it. Other than that, that's pretty much all I do for playtesting. Um, I'm not as big on making everything perfectly balanced. I'm completely okay with some fights being too easy and some fights being too hard. You know, almost all fantasy adventure games have some sort of clause in them that says if you are fighting, you know, low HD monsters and you're, you know, fifth level and you're fighting a bunch of kobolds, you only get part experience for it. I expect that groups will use that and when they run into a, an encounter on one of my modules way too easy, don't give them combat experience from it. They didn't learn anything from it. But I'm not going to go out and completely change the uh, the encounter to make it more hard because, well, I, I mean, I might depend on the circumstances, but I won't necessarily do that because I think sometimes these weaker encounters, the purpose is not to whittle away the pieces' resources or to prevent present them with a challenge, but to play into the atmosphere of the dungeon. You know, what, what is actually going on in this dungeon and how does this uh, room, how does this encounter play into that? Um, and if monsters are too hard, sometimes you got to run. I expect players to, and if they want to charge in and get themselves killed, then, you know, look, you guys have been playing this long enough, you know better. Um, so my playtesting experience 
is a bit more loose, a bit more raw than I think some people that are really fine-tuning things for that section. Um, I go for a bit more of a loosey-goosey approach. No, I think that's part of your success, though, honestly. I think you're able to do that, too, because you have experience. You've been playing mm-hmm. your whole life. And, so and that's, it. that is a big point, is that um, a lot of it is stuff that you will just kind of get through instinct. The more you, the more you do it, the easier it's going to become, where you can just instinctively look and think, yeah, okay, this is fine. Um, you know, I'm going to run through this to make sure there's no hiccups, but, uh, you know, I know what a room full of orcs is like. This won't be a problem. 100%. No, definitely. Yeah, and it's just built through through the practice and the craft and, and running games. Mm-hmm. As we talk about all the time, you, everybody should be a, a yes game. If you're a fantasy adventure gamer, you should be a yet what we call yes games. Play constantly any play. you have. That's right. And I think that's something I'm known for is like my inability to say no to a game. Yeah, <laughs> this is true too. There, there's been points where I've been playing like, you know, in an 18-day stretch, 16 games. Wow, yeah. I am jealous of that ability <laughs> to to play that often. So, yeah, it may may sound slightly bitter, but uh, I'm truly just jealous <laughs> of the fact that you could do that. So that's cool. I love that the amount to get in there because I would love to be able to do stretches like that occasionally. Because there's just no replacing. I mean, you can read and you can. I mean, you can listen to podcasts and you can watch videos, but nothing will ever replace table time. They, they should all be tools leading you towards playing, not replacing. Correct. Correct. Engage with the game. We preach that all the time here. So, and that's why, Jeff, we want to bring you on is to like body all of those elements of <laughs> craft, creation, playing, you know, it resulting in the actual playing of the game. Because you run these games, you produce these many of these wonderful modules, but you're also playing in a variety of different games. And I think that it's a virtuous cycle. At least that's how I see it from the outside. So, it, and, and that is actually a big thing um, in, in terms of the, you know, going back to kind of flexing that creative muscle by engaging with media that you wouldn't normally watch or listen to or what have you. Play in games that you wouldn't normally play in because it gives you a perspective on how the game runs, how that style of game runs, like mechanically and thematically uh, is what I'm getting at, I think. Um, you know, if you play nothing but uh, OSD, then it's going to come with it a very kind of particular style that matches the OSD adventures or app or AD&D or what have you. Um, if all of a sudden you go into a second edition, like super heavy storyline Dragonlance game, or you go into a fourth edition game that's all about, you know, tactical movement and combat and your powers and all that. Uh, or you go into like a the old FASA Star Trek RPG, like you're going to be looking at things from a completely different perspective. And again, it's giving you ideas elsewhere. Where you know how is fourth edition relevant to fantasy adventure games? Well, it isn't. But every once in a while, you'll remember like, oh, you know, I remember I was playing that forty game, and my character had some cool ability. I wonder how I can replicate that in OD and D or BX, or AD&D, or whatever, you know, turn it into a magic item. And having that perspective in, okay, I played this game and this didn't work, or I played this game and this mechanic actually really did work, um, it helps you just get a, a deeper understanding of, I think, game design, um, as opposed to kind of sticking your head in the sand and only engaging with, um, you know, 
just OSE or something where you're getting such a, a narrow view of what's possible in these types of games. Yeah, actually, OSE is a great example of that because you have Gavin Norman's house style and house setting that are that heavily influence most of those products. So not only are you getting just a, you know, there is the fact that, yes, you're getting just a single rule set, and there's pluses and minuses from that. But mostly in that scenario, you're getting a flavor and a style that you could possibly really like and enjoy, no problem there. But if you're only getting that one note, like you said, it's going to be tough to draw on other inspirations to bring back to that style at some point. So I, I do like that advice quite a bit. I have it in my own myself. Like I've dabbled in many different skirmish war games that you know Osprey publishes. That helps with my creativity process. But I have on the docket eventually. Like I want to run some, or excuse me, I want to play in some Savage Worlds games. I want to play, you know maybe in a few more DCC games. Um, I mean, there's a few other rule sets basically that I wouldn't mind testing out just because I'm never, I know for a fact I'm never going to run or play those games anywhere consistently, but just to kind of see what they are. So, you know, stars without number, anything sci-fi traveler, just different genres, right? Expand the whole, um, your whole world to draw from, I think is, is a hugely beneficial thing. And it also is a palate cleanser, right? So that you are excited you won't to get, get burned out. And you brought up an amazing resource uh, in there, maybe inadvertently. If people don't know about Osprey books, you are in for a treat. These guys are one of the greatest publishers out there. Uh, the Osprey Men at Arms book are absolutely incredible resources. They're historical um, little soft cover books that give you uh, data on different uniforms, different weapons used, different pieces of art, different styles of combat, like anything you can imagine in in respect to historical warfare. And that goes from like, you know, the war in the Middle East ongoing as we speak to like the Bronze Age. They go back all the way. They have the men-at-arms section. They have a uh, thing on castles. That's really cool. Castles and fortifications. Go check out Osprey books. Just flipping through the pictures even will give you inspiration where you think, oh man, this knight, this like Polish knight from 1525, this guy looks really cool. I want to put him in a module. How can I go about doing that? Those books are spectacular. Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed on this one because I've seen them. They have a couple of different lines of books like that. So they have like the historical wargaming books that give you those backgrounds. Um, in all the different eras, right? All the classic war game eras, Napoleonic, Bronze Age, you know, Great War, World War II, et cetera, right? Whatever era you're interested in, there's going to be just unbelievable amounts of detail around those those periods for war gaming. But they also dabble, and I don't know if you know this, um, you probably do, but they also dabble in the fantasy side. So they'll yeah. describe like elves and their tactics, right? Um, in a war game, same thing with dwarves and, and their tactics and give backgrounds on them and, and lore around how they would engage in battles, which I think is kind of cool. You can get into those. I haven't, I haven't dove, dove deep, but I've occasionally like looked at them. So yeah, they're I know pretty about the fantasy line. That's something I've never really looked into. I look at them more from the historical standpoint. Um, but yeah, it, if the, their fantasy stuff follows the same level of quality as the rest of their product, it's going to be such a good resource. 
for people. And it's, it's so divorced from, um, you know, mechanics generally that you can use it for any game you are doing. It is so applicable. Um, absolutely incredible, incredible resource. Osprey, O-S-P-R-E-Y publishing. Go check them out. That's that's got to be the ultimate lesson of today's episode. I think is go, <laughs> yeah. go well, use I mean, publishing. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, uh, it's. I, I'm glad you brought that up because it's never something that comes straight to mind. Because before I got before I stumbled into playing fantasy adventure games, I mean, I started. You know, like I I was a late I was a latecomer to this. Like I knew about RPGs, and then eventually after I started, you know, played my first game, found out about old school games, and then basically understood the style that i wanted which was fantasy adventure gaming um within the last you know couple of years of hanging around the circles that we run in but it took a while to get there and before i got there though osprey was just simply one of the better publishers of skirmish game rules simple and so i knew them for years like decades and um they've always created really high quality products and then they also in more recent years have got into actual board games they kind of walk the line between like a skirmish war game and a board game. So they have some really good products out there for anybody that's interested and their stuff is just well made and they have, they have debatably the best um, skirmish war game rules maker currently going like designer in uh, Joseph Bacolif. I think he's the guy that does Frostgrave for anybody yeah. that yeah. dabbles in that. The dude's just prolific. It's insane how much stuff he puts out and his games are just so much fun. So Anyway, um, I could go off. We could probably both go off for days for how good Osprey is. But yes, go check out Osprey Publishing. <laughs> um, on the same topic, a good resource uh, for people in fantasy adventure games that has to do with war game that they might not realize is um, if you're looking for a map, like a world map, and you don't really know what you want to use, you can do what I did. And I went and looked at old issues of strategy and tactics. The, like hex and shit military wargaming magazine and each issue came with a fully complete hex and shit wargame that comes with a hex map and i looked through a bunch of them and one of them uh it's from sometime in the 90s i think the game was called sideshow and it took place in east africa and that's my campaign world map i just unfold that and you know you have all these foreign-sounding town names like Iringa, Itongo, or whatever. Um, there's a couple cities that I say, oh, no, that doesn't say Nairobi anymore. That doesn't say Kilimanjaro anymore. Other than those two, you know, whatever place names there, that's the name. And it's a great-looking map. It's got mountains, it's got forests, it's got plains, it's got roads, it's got different types of roads, so I can demarch them as, you know, a patrolled road with less chance of wandering monster, uh, you know, a path that it exists as a path, but it's, you know, there's no guard presence or anything. So you won't get lost, but don't expect any, uh, you know, prevention of bandits showing up. It's got water features on it, you know, rivers, and parts of the ocean and lakes. It's a great map. And I bought this issue of some 90s wargaming magazine on eBay for like $19.99 kind of thing. It was, it was nothing. Great resource if you're looking for a world map. And yeah absolute great advice there's so many wonderful hex maps out in that space um just just go go get you know just browse google um or even board game geek for that matter yeah yeah exactly. for any of those hex and shit war games and just go find one of the maps because they'll have images 
one, you'll expose yourself to some cool games, but two, they'll have images of the maps that are used for the boards. And once you find one that looks like a cool hex map for your campaign, snag it. Because you'll probably be able to get it for super cheap too. Oh yeah, they're uh, they're not expensive, uh, generally. Absolutely great idea for anybody that just wants to get a quick map, and it will be unique to most everybody that will play. <laughs> the, <laughs> the The odds of them having played some obscure um, hex and chip war game that you got that from are are slim to none. So no one will know at all where you got that. They'll think you're just a genius and you can you have some unbelievable printing skill. So. <laughs> I like it. So, no, it's great. I've seen that map of yours too that you use, and it's so yeah, nice. yeah, that's really cool. Well, before we jump over, I think it's a good segue into kind of creating. You could talk everybody through the kind of uh, homebrews that you use to run your games, because as if anybody has can't tell so far in the conversation, you obviously are open to bringing in different mechanics and rules from all over wherever you feel you know you're inspired from. So, kind of talk us through what do you currently use. Why did you bring those, you know, different, you know, rules in? What do you go about when you're looking at possibly additions to your own homebrew? And then kind of the things that you enjoy about homebrewing and maybe some things that lessons that you learn that you do it would be helpful for people that are interested. Yeah, for sure. Um, so to start, I, I don't quite use the term homebrew. Uh, to me, homebrew represents something that someone, you know, built from the ground up. It's, it's their own thing. I use the term Frankenbrew because it's some hideous monster built out of the parts of a thousand corpses. Uh, I think it more accurately represents uh, my my process in making these rules. And you're right that you have a lot of people in uh, in fantasy adventure game. You almost have two schools. You have people that no, we're playing you know OD and D LBB by the book. That's what you're getting. And then you have people that are like permanently incapable of running something by the book and have to completely customize everything they do. And the way I see it, uh, if I if I look at just D&D, I look at the OD&D line, the BX line, and maybe, you know, Becky at all, and the AD&D line. And I've described this before that AD&D is a fully furnished house. You can buy it, there's, you know, all the walls and windows, there's doors, there's furniture in there. You know, maybe you want to, you know, change your kitchen table, that's fine. But, like, you can just walk into the house and it's ready to go. BX is a house and there's no furniture. OD&D is, like, a bunch of plywood and two-by-fours, make your own house. That's kind of how I view these. So, my system is built off of BX, uh, specifically the Mold Bay Cook systems, because that's what I had hard copies of the book for. And it's something that has come about very organically, where I started off running it very by the book. And as I played, as I played, I realized, oh, I don't really like this. I want to change, like, turning undead with clerics. Um, by the book in Moldvay Cook is busted. It's really crappy. So the first step I do is I look at AD&D and see if I like that system better. It's going to be more complete. And I say, oh, perfect. I like it. I'm going to port in the AD&D cleric undead system. Then I'll go through and I'll say, oh, I, uh, you know, a character got a disease. Well, the AD&D disease tables are maybe my favorite part of AD&D. I guess I better throw this into my little personal DMG. Then I'm going through, I buy a box of like old RPG books on Facebook Marketplace and I find some old book from the 80s called Arcanum. I'm like, oh man, this is a super cool book. It's just full of all old spells and they're almost roughly compatible with 
D&D. I guess I'll add some of these cool ones in. And it's very just much as I find something, I'll throw it in. So I have a my own personal monster manual where I have retyped every monster that I ever plan on using. And it, you know, they, it fits in a little like free, uh, you know, free prong notebook. And I, it, I've done it so I don't have to carry around a dozen different monster manual books. I can just type up the barest stats of all these. I don't need monster descriptions because I already know, you know, what these monsters are. I can just give their stats and whatever special abilities they have, and away I go. I have a spell book that is just every spell that players have access to retyped, given to them. I have a player book, which is basically just class rules, ability score bonuses, XP tables to hit and save tables, and equipment. That's all that's in there and a quick glossary at the back and, you know, stuff like encumbrance and movement rates and stuff like that. And then I have my own little DMG, which is basically just tables. Um, whenever I find a game with a table that I like, I'll just pick it up and take it. Um, and there's parts from OD&D in there. There's parts from AD&D in there. There is parts from whatever, you know, BX that I'm using, but I don't want to carry the BX book around. And there's parts that I already know how it works, so I'm not going to type that up, or I'm going to type it up in far less detail. And I'm only going to put in the parts that, you know, I actually need to reference in the rule book. Um, you know, I've added in system shock and item saving throws from AD&D. I have a death table that is kind of just my own thing that I've made from, you know, just experimenting. I have pummeling and grappling from AD&D in there. I have jousting from OD&D. I have a bunch of custom wanted monster tables. I have a page on hex traveling, which is sort of my own thing, you know, tweaked from a couple different places it's just whenever i find something interesting i'll kind of pick it up tweak it a bit so it fits whatever else i have cost and i got rules for poisons uh what else is in here i've taken a bunch of stuff from back swords and bucklers which is a like a i don't know shakespearean era D clone and it's got a really good table for generating one-off uh like city adventures so if it's the kind of thing where you know a couple of your players can't show up and they're in town and you just need a quick quick dirty adventure it's got some really good tables for rolling up you know who's giving you the job what's your relationship to them how much are they offering what's the job what are they willing to pay what's the complication um really quick and dirty table for that and it's it's really just me grabbing something that i like throwing it into the document so it all you know fits on a page running it as much as i can and then over time i'll decide eh, i don't like this or yeah, okay, this is working, I'll keep it. It's very, very organic. And I think that's what people need to take away from Frank and Brewing and Home Brewing is it has to be from actual play experience. I think you have a lot of people that are just absolutely addicted to tweaking and twisting things and, and trying to find that perfect game. You're not going to find it. And I think people get this almost paralysis where they, they keep wanting, oh, no, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. Stop it. Just run the game. However you have it, run it, and you'll find what works and what doesn't work. And just over time, it will very naturally grow into something usable. And it might only be usable by your table, but that's fine, right? Because that's who you're playing with. 
but the biggest thing is actually get out there and and play the game with those rules and and find what works and what doesn't and and you know be upfront with your players that okay i'm trying to find something that works if you guys have feedback i'd love to hear it um in terms of you know oh i'm i'm playing this class and i don't really like how this mechanic works you know how the thief works okay well let's see uh maybe i'll I'll look at uh lotfp how they do thief skills kind of thing and and add that in uh and you know see how that player feels about it um but the biggest takeaway is you have to actually play the games put put the keyboard down play the game you can tweak it after you've figured out what you need to tweak well it makes sense and i think i think you're absolutely right we see this a lot that uh everybody's out there for this for the holy grail of games that's just mm-hmm. never going to exist every game is going to have pros and cons and so either you get comfortable with a pre-established game and what it has to offer you and you know that that's going to be for a while at the very least right you're going to run that game and that's what you personally enjoy and maybe there's another game you move on to or whatever but you 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 know what comes with the fully furnished house you just get that furniture and you're never going to change it it has to be something that you have to like and yep. your players have to like I, the route that you take which i think is also completely viable is developing a game over time with your players and i think there's a i think there's a certain group only a certain group that could pull that off at least from my in my opinion is that and i think you're definitely one of those because no matter what and and this will kind of we'll move this conversation as well is your players i have no doubt trust you that when they show up that night they're going to have a good time yeah this that, i have no question in my mind right huge thing and and we we know guys that have brought up the concept of the high trust party before and that is mad. Like you can't just be playing with a completely different group of people for a one shot every week. It has to be a group of, you know, preferably friends that you know, and you guys are friends first, uh, and you're there to play D and D as friends. Um, it'll be a lot easier to talk to each other about what's working and what isn't, and um, that is that. That's a huge point that you bring up. Is is trusting the group that no one is here to try and, you know, win the game and abuse whatever systems are in place. And that's huge for having something, you know, these kind of uh, Frankenbrew or homebrew systems working. You're, you're spot on with that. Yeah. And I think having that ability to show up, your players knowing they're going to show up, they know they're going to get a, a fun night because the content that's going to be put in front of them is going to be engaging you know, there's going to be lots for them to do and it's going to be unique and have your particular flavor on it, which is awesome in my opinion. So to me, when you have that trust level, like we're talking about, they're totally willing to experiment with different rules every single session. And like you said, though, you're building towards a particular feel and, and connectedness of the rules that you're bringing over time. So it's not just that I would imagine kind of what you explained. You're not just throwing in like taking out half the system and replacing it with a completely different system that's in no way related, you know, the other half every single session. Mm-hmm. It sounded more like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded more like you're sprinkling things in and over years it becomes kind of yeah. a cohesive unit. Okay. Absolutely. And, and another big thing is when I look at the changes that I've done, most of them haven't been player-facing. Um, once I did the kind of, you know, 
quote unquote release version of the spell document that I gave to my players. There's been very few changes to that. And there's been very few changes to classes. Uh, when I look at my you know player document, the only thing that has changed in it, apart from you know some typos and grammatical errors that I've spotted here and there, is I've added um, custom level titles for each alignment. So a lawful and a chaotic fighting man have different level titles. That is the only thing, really, that has changed. And I, I added in an appendix N one day uh, for the players. So from the player side, they're not really dealing with a constant uh, flux of how the game functions. Most of those little things I've added are on the DM side, where it's, okay, I've dealt with poisons in this way, and I don't like how that worked. Okay, I'll try something else. The players have no idea that I've done something. Well, they might when I say, oh, uh, you have to roll this. Oh, I didn't roll that last time. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying something out. Don't worry about it. Um, most of the changes I have made are DM-facing. And I think that's uh, an important segment because the players don't have to learn something new every time. They don't have to get used to something and then forget it. That is an important point, I think. No, definitely. A lot more latitude to play with uh, the back-end mechanics, you know, around world building, content creation, you know, all those things can easily be be tinkered with a lot more easily without your players ever seeing it. It's when you're playing around with, like you said, player-facing rules like, you know, attack for, you know, tables that are dealing with combat that they're going to engage with almost every session or exploration they're going to engage with every session. Yeah. That becomes a little more, you know, that's a little, if you're switching those out every session, it's going to be very jarring. <laughs> yeah. And, and there, there have been things that I have changed that are player facing. Uh, in my BX games, uh, fighters get a flat plus one to hit. So it's one of those things that after a couple of days, okay, anyone who's a fighter, just write it on your sheet. You have a plus one. Why? Uh, you just have a plus one. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, or uh, critical hits is something that I added in at one point for only fighters and a couple other specific races, classes. Uh, so fighters, half orcs, cavemen stuff like that can do criticals no one else can and it was the kind of thing where i just told the players okay by the way you can do this now but the and in you know the cleric on dead tables i said okay we can erase that we have a new table now this is what we're sticking with the ADD table most of the actual functioning of their character has stayed pretty much identical to day one and that's that's really important i think just to prevent the kind of player confusion that comes from that I like it. That's cool. I think a lot of people that listen to the show are will be very interested in potentially, you know, dabbling in the uh the Frankenbrew world. So and uh it's not something that we don't encourage. I feel like there's a lot of and, and hopefully something that people grab out of this from this conversation is that there's a lot of ability and a lot of latitude in fantasy adventure gaming. Um mm -hmm. we you know, there's pillars, there's fundamentals that make it fantasy adventure gaming, but within side of those pretty broad pillars. There's a lot that you can do. And uh, another thing is to, you know, be, be open-minded with your games because you might find a game that is really close to what you want. So, so I currently have two games that I default to running. I have my uh, BX Frankenbrew, and I've adopted Seven Voyages of Xylarathon, which I am absolutely loving. It's, I'm having so much fun. And that is not 100% perfect for me. I have changed one or two things in that, but what I've done is I've printed out my own little kind of house rules document. Again, most of it's DM facing. Um, 
basically new monster stats uh, that weren't in the original book and some other little fairly minor things. Like I put a new language table in. There's a bit of setting information. Um, some of it's just reorganized information from the, the main book that I just want, you know, easier access for the players to open up and find the attack matrices. Um, I've changed the races slightly so there's no elves, halflings, and dwarves. Like, you know, you can you can get away with altering a game without altering every aspect of it. Um, in terms of changes, you know, in my Seven Voyages games from what's presented in the book, pretty much the only thing the players are going to notice is the no demi-humans, but instead there's uh, Nephilim-blooded, Jin-blooded, and Satyr-blooded races. That's pretty much the only thing they're going to notice, and it's an easy thing that you can write on, like, an index card and stick in the rulebook on that page. So, you know, you can you can get full into, you know, homebrewing and frankenbrewing, but you can also do a really simple, hey, yeah, guys, we're playing AD&D, but uh, I have lizard men instead of half-orcs. Here you go. Here's one sheet. And, you know, that might be exactly the game you're looking for. So when you find these games, you know, think about it in terms of how much work do I actually need to do to make this the game that I want? Try to work smart, not hard. If a game really isn't working for you, it's probably not the game for you. But if a game is so close, it might just be easier to change like two things and, and, and you're, you're laughing. That's great. So I think kind of uh, the final topic I really want to cover with you, Jeff, and obviously I'll give you the last word if there's anything else you want to bring up too, but um, towards the end of the podcast, but you have quite, like you, we've mentioned previously, you play in a lot of games, not just online, in person as well mm -hmm. and you have a pretty open system or at least your players come from all over and you recruit from all over oh, yeah. so what are some of the you know there's guys that look into recruit table or a table get to people together we talk about this a lot on the podcast and elsewhere kind of what are your tips for people how have you been successful what do you find to be useful for uh, getting players to your table start with friends especially in my real life games they're all people that i know ahead of time and it's the kind of thing where, you know, we're chatting and I'll say, uh, hey, I have uh, Monday nights free now. Who's interested in playing D&D? &D? And, you know, three of the guys might say, oh, yeah, yeah, what are you thinking? Okay, I have this idea. Yeah, sure, we're in. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll ask around to, you know, a couple of my other friends. And if you guys know anyone, uh, you know, one of the guys, oh, yeah, my, uh, my brother-in-law, he's, he's been wanting to play D&D &D for a while. Okay, perfect. Invite him in. And because... Everyone know and like not everyone knows each other, but everyone knows at least one person. Like none of none of us knew, you know, my friend's brother in law, but you know, they know each other well enough. Um <laughs> it's really easy to just jump into that high trust group as opposed to, you know, recruiting a bunch of people online, you know, and, and hoping to kind of strike gold. That's not to say I don't do that. Yeah. I think a big thing if you are recruiting friends if you're recruiting people online you know wherever you're going is be very upfront about the expectations of the game tell them exactly the type of game you want to run and let them know like this is this is what we're planning on doing if you are interested you know and you are authentically able to commit great i'd love to have you. if uh it's a super casual game 
I have a game uh, every two, like every second Tuesday. It's extremely casual. Um, it started because uh, two of my friends were sick and tired of not seeing everyone during COVID. They said, you know, we should uh, we should get together and just hang out. Jeff, Jeff, you want to run D&D for us? Yeah, sure. No problem. It's, it's, a, it's a hangout primarily D&D second. So go in where, where everyone is clear on the expectations of the game. So you can, you can have those commitment levels established ahead of time. Because that's, that's what kills the game, right? When week after week after week, oh, I can't show up. Oh, I can't show up. Oh, I can't show up. Okay, well, you're out. We're moving on. We're finding someone that can commit. And in terms of finding, you know, players who are well suited to the game, I might not be the best person to ask that um, because I don't really have any rhyme or reason for any um, any you know intelligent thought on that because I've played with people from all sorts of gaming backgrounds from. They've played a bunch of 5e, they've played 3rd edition, they've played absolutely nothing, they've played old school games. And I kind of just go into it all with the exact same approach of saying, well, if you're interested in what I am doing in these you know, stipulations, then great, you're more than welcome to join in. And you know, if you have any questions about how things work because you're not familiar with this style, you know, ask me. If I don't know, I know guys who do know. Most of them are, you know, the normal uh, people on this podcast. You know, I'm, I'm asking EOTV uh, or Zerb as how something works. But I, I don't have a good answer of, um, you know, look for people that can do this, look for people that can do that, look for people that have this kind of experience. Um, I, I go into it completely just if someone's interested, I trust that they are interested to learn when I tell them something. Um, so I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for that. No, no, not at all. Yeah, I think it's just, uh, I think that is your, I think that's what's unique about your answer is that you're open to anybody coming to the table and you've been successful at doing that. <laughs> so, and like you said, I think maybe the maybe the little piece I'll, I'll ask about and unwind is you said expectations, right? <laughs> at the beginning, you kind of mentioned that a little bit. How exactly do you like to do that with new players <laughs> that are coming to your table? So, uh, Step one is um, here's here's like the the gold standard of Jeff game expectations. Step one is I ask them, okay, how much do you know about D and D? Do you know what uh, you know the six stats are? Okay, great. So you know what strength and dexterity are. Perfect. You know what charisma is. All right. Here's what you need to know. Everyone in this world has eighteen charisma. Everyone is, be this is a Frank Frazetta painting right here. And I, if they don't know Frank Frazetta, they're about to find out who Frank Frazetta is. And I show them as many Frank Frazetta paintings as they need. And I say, I don't care if you're a wizard. I don't care if you're a priest. I don't care if you're a thief. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. You're the absolute paragon of humanity. You're a hero. You're beautiful. No one is wearing clothing. Everyone is just wearing oil. And fur. See all these monsters? You're going to go and kill them. That's what they get to know. <laughs> We are playing Frank Rosetta paintings here. Um, or my Seven Voyages games, I say, yeah, have you seen any Ray Harryhausen movie? Good. That's what we're playing. If you're not into that, this won't be for you. If you are, you're in luck. And I'm just very blunt at telling them that. And if they're into playing a Frank Rosetta game or a Ray Harryhausen game, perfect. If not, 
I got bad news for you. <laughs> this is probably the wrong game for you. Um, I was going to run Castles and Tillin recently and ended up running something else. I put a, a poll forward to my players and they, uh, they all went for one of the other options. And uh, my pitch for that was Arrested Development with Skeletons. And that got quite a few uh, you know, raised eyebrows, people saying, oh, okay, this is, this is a good option. I'm, I'm interested in this. Um, but I'll, I'll just tell them exactly how I plan on running the game. Sometimes I might give them a little appendix in of go and watch these movies. Um, you know, I try not to make it too long because I can very easily do that. I watch a lot of movies. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, if that's what they're into, then, you know, stick around. And I think it has even, I think it might actually work to your benefit if they never done that or don't even know they're interested in or not. Because yeah, absolutely. a pitching it in that manner, them. yeah, pitching it in that manner, like, well, that actually sounds cool. Or they look at the painting and there's just no way that you can't look at Frank Frazetta painting <laughs> not and not have some type of, yeah, exactly. And not have some type of reaction, right? Like there's going to be some reaction. I mean, for people that I, I would want to play with it, it I want to see a like eye popping reaction if they've never yeah. seen it. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I know, you know, that's such a great idea is just present the image of what you're about to play to them and just kind of, see the response because even if they weren't interested in playing D and D or the game itself, all of a sudden you pitch in that manner and they're like, well, let me reassess that. Right. Like, yeah. let me try it and see, you know, so I like, so I, like I have a folder on my computer. This is called D and D inspiration and it's a bunch of art. Some of it is D and D art. Like there's some Caldwell, there's some Elmore, there's a bunch of Zeta. There is uh, some Norum, some Dusko, some Alejo. There's some Michael Whalen did all the Elric art. There's also mm-hmm. some classic, um, you know, like I have the uh, MC Wyatt's Robin Hood art. I have a bunch of Victor Vesnetsov, he's a Russian artist. Um, and whenever I need to say, oh yeah, this is the game we're doing, you know, I'll, I'll pull that up um, and show that to someone. Or I might be coming up with an idea and say, oh yeah, are you familiar with uh, the King of the Dead? Um, art for uh you know was used for this Sirathungal album or was used for this um uh Elric and Elmabone book and they say no okay yeah let me pull this up show it to them and instantly they know the image that I am using in my head that's awesome no, I like that a lot you know a, a picture is worth a thousand words no question about it well my friend is there any pearls of wisdom you wanted to close this out with the listeners to running better games or anything in general or any resources that you think would be valuable to someone getting into this game? Yeah, I have both a pearl of wisdom and an apology. Uh, pearl of wisdom will be play the game. You know, yeah, we like to sit around online and talk about it. We like to listen to podcasts about it. We like to watch YouTube videos about it. You know, read blog posts. Get some people together and play the game. It's you will learn so much more from doing that. It's just, that's number one. Play the game. Uh, the apology is, you know, of course, now I come on, have this nice podcast appearance. I'd love to come on again. Um, and, you know, we're talking about how fast I put out some of these modules. I need to apologize to everyone because I'm going to be away on a course for the next 18 months. 
So now that we've hyped me up, uh, don't expect anything new from me for about a year and a half. Uh, so I would like to apologize on that front, but do not worry. I will be back in the future with lots of uh, lots of stuff. I have stuff already underway that's just going to be you know shelved for a year and some. Um, but I will be back, and I will be back with a lot of modules for you guys to play. That's actually perfect. Let everybody know, Jeff, how they could get a hold of you, get get a, get their hands on your modules. What's the you best? You can man? go over to drivethroughrpg.com and type in Buddy Scott Entertainment Group. And that should have everything. You can also go to swordsandschlock.com. That's all spelled out. You know, swords and schlock, all one word. Sorry, dot wordpress.com. Uh, there's also a download link there for all my modules. Most of it is just me talking about really crappy movies. So if you want to listen to me talk about bad movies, you can go there. But like I said, there's a downloads link that has all of my stuff. Um, that will be kind of posting on that site will be on hiatus for a while. Uh, like I said, I'll be away on course for a year and a half. When I have a chance, I will uh, watch some more bad movies and, and put up some, uh, some new posts. And I have probably about five months worth of posts already pre-written that I have scheduled to release over the next while. So you might not even notice that I'm out there. Uh, but yeah, drive through RPG, Buddy Scott, all one word, Entertainment Group, or Swords and Schlock. Um, yeah, that should be it. I don't think there's any other ways of contacting me. If I have, I have forgotten, and I apologize. No, that's great. And it, it might be out of time, it, depending on when people listen. So if you come to this, you know, months from now in the future, uh, this will be completely, it will make no sense to you at all. But to people that are listening to this as it comes out, I would like to remind everyone that there is the third No Art Punk competition coming up. Uh, you can find that out by going to Prince's, one of the other guys on this podcast uh, blog, Age of Dust, I think is what it's called. What's his blog called? I'm sure there's links to it in the classic. It's Prince gaming. of Nothing. It's Prince of Nothing.blogspot.com, I believe. But Prince of Nothing blogs.wordpress. That's what Yeah, it that, that WordPress. Yeah, that's it. Um, and if you guys want to see um, some great modules, check out the Norwalk, No Art Punk series and this coming competition is regarding high-level fantasy adventure gaming. Um, I have a module in it, but don't worry about that. There's going to be far more impressive modules by other people. Uh, check this stuff out. It's going to give you a really good insight into what you can do at this level of gaming. Absolutely worth checking out. Prince has a really good eye for these kinds of things, and his comments are, um, are generally pretty good. Uh, so so read his posts, you know, as in-depth as you can. He he has a good eye for this stuff. He most certainly does. But definitely check out uh, Jeff's stuff. I've loved it. He is, he's going to be missed. There's no question about it. Uh, we do wish you well, Jeff, though, on this endeavor. It's going to be quite the, quite the, quite the adventure. Oh, it'll and, be, it'll uh, be I'm and excited be to back. see what you could draw. Yeah, you will be back. Yeah. Um, anybody that's interested in talking to Jeff when he gets back, um, Obviously, we got the CAG server that's linked to the podcast. Jeff hangs out there. Um, you can contact him through the methods that he just told you to. So, yep. And uh, yeah, if you're in the the CAG server, my username is the old Jeff or Jeffy, as some people say it. You can send me a message there. I might be very slow getting back to you because 
I'm probably not going to have a lot of internet access over the next while. But, um, you know, send me a private message and I'll, I'll get to it when I can. You know, if anyone has in-depth questions about anything I've gone over today or anything else, like I, I have no problem answering these for people and helping you guys. Um, you know, it, it is not going to bother me if you come at me with 50 questions. I really don't mind. Please don't be a stranger in that respect. Just don't expect an instant reply. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure tonight. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been um, great. Absolutely. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Have a good one. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed getting a little glimpse inside the mind of a mad genius of adventuring. That is ye old Jeff. I had the pleasure to interact a lot with Jeff in several Discord servers and I've run his adventure Crypt of Terror three times for three separate groups. I believe one of those sessions was actually at this year's North Texas RPG Con and my players and I all had a blast each time in each session that I ran it. So regardless of what uh, any well-known bloggers may have to say about Jeff's work, one thing I know is certain this man loves this hobby, and he loves playing the game above all else. And I believe that it truly shows through in his modules. Before I sign off, just a reminder to all who are interested, please join us on the CAG Discord server. Um, you can always find a link in the show notes to uh, invite to the server. Come hang out, chat with us, and get in some gaming. So until we meet again in the next episode, get, that, get out there and play some games. Thank you.